Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 39. A conversation with author, creative writer, and fellow podcaster, Chris Kalman. Chris and I have been discussing coming on the show for quite some time, so I was beyond excited to finally get him on to talk about his writing and how he has used it as a vehicle to tell stories and share information on climbing-related issues and challenges. Before Chris really began to gain notoriety for his writing, he worked for the National Park Service on trail crew and as a climbing and backcountry ranger. And in doing so, working for the Park Service gave him an insightful perspective on how National Park visitors, namely climbers, leave their impact and what he did to educate these folks on minimizing said impact. He found it most useful to educate rather than slap everyone with a ticket or a fine. I use the words passive versus active enforcement for the lack of a better term in the episode, but I think education, using education over enforcement is probably a better way to put it. And he's now able to carry that ethos forward in his own outdoor pursuits. After talking through Chris's background a bit, we get into an article that he had published in Outside Online back in 2018 about the June voluntary closure at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. I'll allow Chris to explain the closure some more and the resulting impacts it has had on climbing and native interests there, but he considers the thought that maybe the time has come to discuss the closure again at length to see what a successful closure looks like. I appreciated his perspective on the matter and his utmost respect for native lands. It was a great way to kick off our conversation. I want to take a quick second to acknowledge that the Access Fund highly encourages all climbers to respect the voluntary closure in June at Devil's Tower. They support compliance with the voluntary closure as a means to A, to promote understanding and encourage respect for the culture of the numerous Native American tribes who are closely affiliated with the tower as a sacred site, and B, promote and advance self-regulation by climbers rather than more restrictive options. And that's what Chris and I talked about with allowing climbers to self-regulate and self-educate about the, about the closure. So thank you all for respecting the closure. If you'd like to read some more about it, I've included two links in the show notes. One is directly from the Park Service and the other is from the Access Fund. So check those out for more information. But the meat of the conversation took us to the Southern Hemisphere, to a place that Chris is particularly passionate about, and what he says is the most special place he's ever been. 
and that's the Cochamo Valley in the Patagonia region of Chile. I'm sure nearly all of us have heard at least a whisper about Cochamo, as it has had quite a bit of exposure in climbing media in recent years. I mean, rightfully so, the place looks absolutely stunning, and it's often compared to Yosemite Valley with its tower and granite walls. But as we all probably know, with exposure comes impacts. But with impacts can come stewards and advocates. Chris tells us about the changes that he has witnessed over the many trips he has taken there over the years. Towing the line between tourism and conservation is a tricky one, to say the least, and Chris felt so compelled to tell the story about this and about Cochimo, he wrote a book about it. And this is not any ordinary book, but a fictional story with a very powerful message. He uses this fictional story about Cochimo to raise a level of awareness around how advocating for a place could ultimately lead to its demise, or at least a decline in its naturalness. However, not all is even close to being lost, as we have all seen what can actually come out of advocating very strongly for a place and giving it the proper exposure, such as the recent win with Bears Near's National Monument, right? Chris doesn't think that Cochimo has been, quote, messed up yet, and he has taken steps to keep it that way. He helped form a friends group on behalf of Cochimo, but ultimately gives the locals down there all the credit for what they have been doing to keep Cochimo growing at a sustainable rate. It was such a pleasure to chat with Chris and hear him speak so passionately about Cochimo and his creative pursuits to advocate for climbing. All the articles we talk about in the episode are linked up in the show notes, as are his books as well. I cannot recommend them enough. So let's get into this one. Please enjoy my engaging conversation with creative writer and author Chris Kalman. At Access Fund, we are on a mission to lead and inspire the climbing community towards sustainable access and conservation of the climbing environment. In the last 12 months, we've saved Colorado's iconic thumb and needle, helped climbers buy a major new crag in Tennessee, awarded over $25,000 in climbing conservation grants, and so much more. When you become an Access Fund member today for just $40, we'll throw in a free t-shirt with original artwork of Cochise Stronghold by Vernon Key. Members also qualify for some pretty cool perks like discounts on outdoor brands and pro deals. Plus, you'll be making a direct investment in protecting America's climbing. To become a member, visit accessfund.org forward slash 40 member. That's accessfund.org forward slash 40-M-E-M-B-E-R. Thanks, Chris. We, uh, right when we jumped on, we're like, yeah, it's been a long time coming. We finally made it happen. It's been it's been several months in the making to get uh, get this scheduled. So I'm super appreciative of your time to, to set aside some time this afternoon to chat for a bit. Yeah, I guess that's what growing up is, huh? It's like takes <laughs> like five months to have a one hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You always just got to carve out that time amongst yeah. everything else to make something like this happen. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Um, so yeah, you're down in Flagstaff. You've been there a little while. I think I, I have a somewhat of a decent history of where you've been and where you're from and stuff, but can you give us an idea of, uh, maybe where you grew up and what took you eventually to Flagstaff? Sure. Yeah. I, I grew up in Northern Virginia. So, you know, just a suburb of Washington, DC. And, um, I kind of knew by the time I was in college that I didn't want to be in that part of the world anymore, but I had committed to, four years in Southern Maryland, which was a long ways away from climbing. Uh, so as soon as I graduated in 2007, I think, 
which it's so long ago now. 15 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, got a job working on a trail crew out in Rocky Mountain National Park. And that's kind of like, I had done a little bit of sport climbing up till then and a bit of bouldering and stuff like that. But um, getting out into Rocky, you know, you're surrounded by big mountains and, and big, big like granite faces. And uh, those just like climbing started to take on a whole new meaning for me. You know, it was sort of hard to be bouldering in the shadow of like a thousand foot wall or something, you know, without wanting to like go up and climb the bigger thing. Um, so I worked for a few years in Rocky and, um, then took a couple years off of the park service and was really just a climbing bum, just, you know, going all over the place, some international trips. Um, I ended up getting hired as a climbing ranger at Mount Rainier National Park in Washington. And that's where I uh, basically fell in love with climbing at Index, which is this sort of smaller crag in Washington that is sort of a cult classic. You know, it's got a it's got a following and a reputation for sure. But, you know, it might not be uh, quite as on the beaten path as like, you know, Smith Rock and Squamish, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I climbed there for a few years and then, uh, various life things took me out East again. And then, um, my now wife, but at the time fiance started to do a business degree in Fort Collins. So then I was back on the front range, uh, for a couple years. And then when she finished her degree, she got hired for a job down here in Flagstaff. And I was pretty elated to to come down here with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had been to flag a couple times over the years and I knew there was really good climbing and it was a little more under the radar. So it was a, it felt like a good fit and it, it really has been. It's, it's on my, I don't want to say short list, but it's on my list. I mean, like paradise first looks absolutely incredible. Uh, just yeah. splitter and Sedona is not too far either. Yeah. It looks, it looks really good. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, par- it's funny because there's like Paradise Forks is still what a lot of people think of when they think of Flagstaff. And Paradise right. Forks is good. Don't get me wrong. It's mm-hmm. it's good and it's beautiful. But there's at least two other basalt crags that I think are that I would prefer to go to over Paradise Forks. Um, so and then that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so, so much climbing. Um a lot of it's kind of chossy, but if you don't like, if you kind of get used to that, it doesn't feel chossy anymore in a weird way. Yes. Um, right. And then when you go to areas that aren't chossy, they just feel surprisingly like you're like, Whoa, this is what real rock feels like. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. That hold is definitely not going to break. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it almost feels like easier. Maybe you're just like, oh, I've been climbing through a bunch of garbage. It's maybe. a bit easier. You can, it's, it's kind of like going from trad to sport climbing. It's like, there's an area of your brain that you get to turn off. Right. You know, totally. So what years were you in Fort Collins? Uh, I'm terrible with years, but it would be like <laughs> four to five years ago. So maybe okay. 2017 and 18 or something like that, somewhere in that realm. All right. Yeah. yeah. I was there. Oh, nine to 12. So we didn't quite overlap, but it was curious if it was closer to gotcha. that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, Fort Collins is quite cool. That's a, like, I think on the front range, that's probably the place I would most want to be. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get I get pretty nostalgic from time to time. It's yeah, just what what's that's what started my Colorado career, I guess, for lack of a better term. And um, nice. cut my that's where I like started climbing, learned how to climb was there, and and then nice. I was taking it to the Gunnison Valley, where yeah, there's a lot of choss around here, but in between the choss, it's there's really really good rock, and just like you said, you get used to the choss. You can you can yeah. climb anywhere else. <laughs> I, yeah, I love climbing in the black. I don't know. Do you know um, Philippe Wheelock, the climbing I ranger do. out there? Yep, yeah, Philippe sure and I work together on Rainier, and okay. so we've been good friends for a long time. And um, I've climbed a number of routes in the black with him, and they're always like, I don't know. It's just such a an amazing experience, you know, fully mentally engaged from the moment you like go down below the rim even the yep. approaches right you're like yeah. whoa this is pretty real <laughs> right and then all the way until you top out uh, such a cool place to climb it's it's full on yeah from uh yeah right when you leave the campground um and you don't really get much sleep the night before because you're thinking about what you have to do the next day yeah, then, yeah <laughs> until you get back to your car and philippe says i'm pretty sure he's like all you have to do is just get make it back to the car <laughs> yep, exactly. oh man yeah i don't climb there i don't climb there anymore i spent many years going there but since uh i think i mentioned that accident i was in to you uh, a long time ago um mm-hmm. yeah i kind of hung up my black canyon hat and haven't returned <laughs> yeah i don't i don't gosh if i don't recall that i don't recall talking about that it was i think in an old email exchange we had um gotcha yeah anyway i didn't expect you to remember but um i wanted to touch <laughs> i wanted to touch on a couple of things that you've just mentioned uh you know you mentioned you spent a few years at index you co was it a co your co-author or author of the index guidebook yeah, it's sort of a co-author. Like I did all the work together with my friend Maddie Van Bean. Um, and he Maddie's this astoundingly good photographer. Um, and so he pretty much did all the write or sorry, all the photo work and I did all the writing work um in the book. But we tag teamed it and writing a guidebook, there's a lot of like work, at least for an area like index, there's a lot of work that has nothing to do with writing a book. So like, you know, we would have to go find crags that were listed in an old guidebook, but, you know, we had no idea how to get to all of that sort of stuff we did together, too. So it's really, yeah, I, we just, I call it co-authoring, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you spent enough time there, right, to, to author the guidebook. And um, I got I got to go there uh, as part of the Access Fund um, Advocacy Summit, their annual summit. Uh, was it 2019? And spent nice. a couple of days in index and it was I might phenomenal. Have been there. Yeah. So, yeah, like October, yeah. November twenty nineteen. Yeah. Um, so good. Yeah, I spent it was my fir- it was my first time to Washington and we had four straight days of sunshine. And everyone oh, was like that's incredible. Everyone's like, This is not usually how it is. You just you hit you hit the right window. <laughs> in October, I mean that's October. Like, yeah. You couldn't you couldn't be in a better place at a better time than that. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I I came back here and bragged about it to everyone. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. do that. But <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. Um, and then one more quick thing I want to touch, I uh, want to circle back on is you came out to Rocky Mountain National Park, working for the Park Service and cutting your teeth some more and climbing. And you wrote a you wrote an article some time ago about the best worst trad climbing, I believe. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I scanned that I scanned that pretty quick when I was prepping for the interview and thought that was pretty funny. Referring to Lumpy Ridge. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's funny because I remember like learning to climb trad on Lumpy. 
I remember um, talking to my friend Miranda, who who was living in Tuolumne and like climbing a ton in Yosemite and in the valley and being like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is like the epicenter of the climbing universe. <laughs> you know, and she was just like, oh, really? Do you think so? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you kind of get out of Colorado, like that, the Colorado bubble a little bit, you know, and you see what else is out there and you realize like, yeah, there's a lot of really good climbing out there and Colorado might be the most popular or like the most well-known, but it's not necessarily the biggest and the best. But, um, but then, but then like I had this, this switch where it was like, okay, at first I was like, Lumpy Ridge is the best. And then I was like, you know, moved to California and Washington and stuff. And I was like, Lumpy Ridge is garbage. But then you move <laughs> back and I had kind of this like full circle moment where I kind of came back to settle in the middle. And it's actually, it's like, you know, it's not the best or the worst. It's kind of like right there in the middle. And it's, it's actually like really good if you're, um, if you're, looking for you know something that might be a little bit slabbier and a little bit more like grooved cracks incipient seams um which i quite like i i really like thought-provoking climbing so lumpy's great yeah exactly i mean i'm i'm colorado pretty much through and through that's where i've been climbing the last like decade almost exclusively yeah. i haven't gotten out too i honestly haven't gotten out too too much outside of like colorado indian creek that's kind of my my go-to yeah. you know been to joshua tree a couple of times been to the gunks uh index yeah. but yeah i haven't ventured out too far but yeah i mean it's not like your splitter things that you know cracks that you'd find in maybe california or or, or the desert a little yeah. bit more thought yeah thoughtful i don't know if that's the right word or not <laughs> yeah and i i like areas too with a lot of climbing history you know um like i would say you know most of the time i'd rather get on a classic sandbag 5.9 from like the 70s rather than like a new age sport clip up 511 <laughs> um they they end up being about the same difficulty physically but one is like a lot more rewarding mentally i feel like yeah, fair enough. I appreciate that that perspective. Yeah. Lumpy's so you, great for that. Yeah, for sure. So, what what was your experience like working for the Park Service? Um, we talked about that a little bit prior to this, um, but you spent some time as a trail crew, um, as a climbing ranger, backcountry ranger. What perspective did that give you on the folks visiting the parks, like climbers? Yeah, I think it's I think it's super valuable to have that experience if you want to have a realistic appraisal of the impact that climbers have on like our resources. Um, I think it's really common for climbers to think that they're sort of inherently better than other user groups, right? It's really easy to point your finger at like ATV drivers or uh, you know mountain bikers or something and be like, oh, look at all these terrible things they do. But um, when you work for the park or, you know, any sort of land manager, you see that climbers are as big a part of the problem as any, you know, they're just humans. And so like working on trail crew, like I don't, I'll never look at a trail the same way again, you know, and I'll never look at a cut switchback the same way again too. Um, so you start to take all that into consideration uh, at Rainier you know, I was staffing the high camps up there as a climbing ranger. And like that gives you a new perspective on 
you know, search and rescue, if nothing else. Uh, I remember feeling pretty proud of myself that early in my, you know, Colorado alpine climbing career, I would just wing it. And I would often find myself in like kind of harrowing situations. And it's, it's funny because that like you learn a lot, you, you learn more from putting yourself in a difficult situation than you could ever learn by reading a book. Right. But at the same time, if you do get yourself in serious trouble and you need help, anytime that a rescue team comes in, you're putting their lives at risk. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, working at Rainier, I saw that side of the coin and uh, just seeing like the increase of visitation to areas like index and um, being in Sequoia national park and being able to see the way people were interacting with that landscape in the backcountry, It just makes you think a lot more about your own impacts as, you know, an outdoors enthusiast. And I kind of wish everyone had that experience because it, I don't know, I think it's made me more circumspect about the way I behave when I'm recreating. Right. Yeah. And not everyone can have that, uh, internal perspective being an employee of one of these land managers right. so what what was what were the common issues that you were seeing and what were maybe the gaps in education that uh, could be improved upon to to uh, improve these matters and situations conditions um i think like probably with with rock climbing one of the most common ones is just impacting base areas you know like um crags uh, at least here in Arizona, but I think a lot of places, you know, they're totally denuded of vegetation and uh, plant life. And, you know, uh, they're just a dust pit, like at the base of the walls. Um, and they didn't used to be like that. It's easy to forget that that's not how they've always been. But like, if you ever approach, you know, a new wall somewhere that hasn't been climbed on, there's that's almost never the case that you just get up to the base and it's like a comfortable landing pad everywhere. So, um, you know, and I'm as guilty as the next guy of just like, if I walk up to a crag at Indian Creek, I just throw my, I, you know, I get to the base and I throw my bag on the ground and open it up and, you know, take out my stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a question of like, how do we go back in time? Because once, once the, the crag does look like that at the base. It's very difficult to say, okay, well, this area is sort of off limits and this area is on limits. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know with the park service, you know, it's just simple things. It's like, you know, in Sequoia, there was a fire ban, but people would build fires. I get it. You know, it's like your backcountry camping uh, fire, like a campfire for most people is like one of the key things for camping. The question is how can you how can you get buy-in from them by by helping them understand the reasons for for the rules you know and there it's it's not made any easier by the fact that you have tons of arbitrary rules <clears throat> pretty much anywhere you recreate you know I guess I I was gonna say like you know marijuana is illegal in Yosemite National Park, but if you step outside of the park boundary and you're in California, it's totally legal. And you're like, uh, so I can have it with my foot over here, but not with my foot over here. When you have pretty arbitrary and asinine policies like that, that don't really make sense, then it's a lot harder 
to get buy-in on other policies because you're like you guys are just trying to enforce rules so i don't know when i was at sequoia or mount rainier like i would try and be you know selective about what rules i would try and make a point about and how i would do that yeah which ones were those well uh like the fire thing in sequoia was really big because it's sequoia it's california like there's fires it's you know like this was back in 2015 so it's gone a lot worse since then but even that season there was like a massive fire that started not far from my backcountry yurt Mm -hmm. so if i saw someone that was having a fire you know i would sit down with them i wouldn't just like slap a fine or give them a ticket i would try and explain to them the reasons why and i would take the time to to sort of figure out there was like an alternative we could come up with you know Mm -hmm. something that Mm -hmm. would feel like you know i i could maybe like um we could maybe like roast s'mores over a stove or so i don't know you know just silly (laughs) things like that to make make people feel like you're on their side you know you're working with them and not against them right right you're acting i don't know is it more passively than actively or just giving them options and just it just i think it just all comes down to education i'm such a big proponent of that yeah Right on. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a very awesome perspective that I'm not sure if I've had yet on the show. So I'm glad you can kind of play both sides and learn from your past experiences and how you carry yourself forward now and be able to tell other people that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of miss working for the park service a lot of the time because it is fun to, to get to interact with people and um, you know, you get a really interesting cross section of users mm-hmm. like, get super intense through hikers and people who are doing their first backpacking trip and backcountry climbers, you know, the whole, whole gamut. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Right on. Well, I, I, I've coined this term a little bit. I, I don't know if I've created it myself, but this term, uh, creative advocacy, and I use this term with, um, with Luke Mihal when I had him on a few months ago, but I'm also using it with you to describe your, advocacy approach or style and there's a few people that come to mind when i think of this term like you're such as yourself luke uh jeremy collins chris hampton and many others but you use your creative pursuits to advocate for climbing such as your written word and it's a great way to connect with people and communicate important messages so the first uh thing I wanted to touch on here, getting into more of this advocacy stuff is your Devil's Devil's uh, Tower article that you wrote mm. for 2018, four years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was about the closures, that the voluntary closure that happens there every June. And I'll let you embellish on that some more. But uh, I think this is the first time I came across your name is when I read this article mm. a few years back. And someone in one of my undergrad classes, I think it was a like a natural resources history and policy class, mentioned something about this closure. And I was like a year or two into climbing, so I didn't really grasp the the gravity of this of this closure and what it really meant so are you able to tell us some more about what this closure is the history of it a bit and um yeah Yeah. for those those folks that might not be familiar with it yeah so um devil's tower or mato tipila uh i believe that's sioux lakota sioux uh as it's called uh otherwise known as bear lodge um that's this incredible plug of of i don't think it's basalt i forget what type of rock it is um but it's sort of 
it's granitic feeling and it forms in columns uh the way basalt often does mm-hmm. and it is just this insanely impressive tower in the middle of the prairie out in wyoming um you know like it's been in i think it was in close encounters of the third kind uh you know it's 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 iconic like it's a piece of the american west um but you know its history with with human civilization goes back way farther than the word america or the nation the united states of america um and it's a sacred site to i don't know exactly how many different tribes over the years but i think there was a number that i found somewhere that was like i think the the national park recognized like 23 different tribes that have significant cultural connections notably it's it's on lakota sioux territory and there's like a real like really long history and i'm neither an expert nor do we have time to to go through the whole thing but like it's worth understanding that there was a treaty with the u.s government i believe it was the treaty of fort laramie um that that federally recognized this land would be part of the lakota sioux reservation and then that land was then taken back from them. The treaty was broken without any sort of merit or reason. And this is all well documented. Like you can look look up all of this information. Um, it's not even debatable, you know? Um, and so the, the interesting thing is that climbing dates back really far, like at least climbing on by white people essentially, or by Americans, um, super far and almost to about the time that these land these treaties were being broken and lands were being forcibly taken from the lakota people so um that's kind of like that's the foundation of climbing you know over the years it became more and more popular to the point where um it was starting to become a problem during june because june is when uh the lakota and i think a, a number of other tribes also have uh like different ceremonies at at mato tipila i think including the sun ceremony mm-hmm. um or it might be the sacred hoop um again it's been a few years since i wrote this but it's it's just a sacred time junus and so uh there was this effort that a lot of different players came in to try and spearhead including the national park and the access fund and uh, various other interest groups to try and make a voluntary climbing closure on devil's tower national monument in june in researching this article i did a ton of reading and including like the final climbing management plan which outlined the closure and uh the uh, like a cultural assessment that gave a recommendation actually for there to be no climbing uh, on the tower period. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the result of like the cultural assessment that the park conducted itself. But there are, there were a lot of stakeholders and they ended up at this voluntary closure. But in the wording of the actual final climbing management plan itself, it says this uh, plan, I, I'm paraphrasing here, something to the effect of this plan will be deemed uh, successful if and when the number of climbers uh, on the tower in June reaches zero. And so following the initial 
implementation of the plan, there was a massive drop in climbers and it was super successful. Yeah. But that was, I believe in 1995. Mm -hmm. And so at this point we're 27 years past that or something, maybe check my math. Uh, yeah, 17, I think that right. 27, I don't know, yeah. but a long time, right? Quarter century. And um, the number of climbers has steadily uh, crept back up. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of the idea of this article was to question whether it's time for a new climbing management plan, or at least to revisit it um, and possibly uh, determine whether uh, the closure should be not voluntary, but mandatory. Mm-hmm. It's basically a question of whether climbers as a population can police themselves. Right. Yeah. I was kind of, was going to ask if the, the closure was kind of set up to give climbers the autonomy to, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing. Yeah. And, and it was, and it was, and part of the reasoning for that was that they didn't want, you know, climbers have a history of being, uh, What's the way I can say this without cursing? Um, we like to thumb our nose at authority, right? Yeah. Traditionally speaking. Uh-huh. So what do you think climbers are going to do if you just slap them with a, like a, a black and white law? You know, nope, no climbing allowed. Well, they're going to break the rules. Uh, and they're also, they're not only going to break them, but they're not going to develop any respect or, or understanding for them either. So the idea was that by making it voluntary, you would create an opportunity for education. And um, personally, I think that's just the the bigger failing of of the implementation. When I went up there in June to um, to research this this story, I found it very difficult to find any kind of like signage or reasoning about the June closure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, it's really interesting because like walking around the base of the tower, you would see signs all over the place talking about raptor closures, but you couldn't find a sign to save your life saying this is a, there's a voluntary closure going on right now out of respect for these native tribes, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, that sort of, I thought that kind of showed a little glaringly where people's priorities were. You know, like we can do it for the birds, but we can't do it for uh, indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been part of a rounder reckoning for the, you know, the climbing population in the U.S. for the last, you know, five or ten years now. And I do think things are getting better um, and they have to. I mean, they just have to because public lands everywhere are indigenous lands. Like there's no public land in this country or private land for that matter that doesn't have indigenous heritage or indigenous culture. And mm-hmm. all of these mountains are significant to different people who predate, you know, the arrival of Western civilization. Right. I mean, right when I said Devil's Tower, you immediately followed with the indigenous name for one for indigenous name, right? One, one of mean, them. One of them, right. That's the thing, is like at least twenty-three different tribes hold this land sacred. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I just think it's super important to understand the context for the places where we're climbing. Yeah. And once you start going down that uh, that line of inquiry, you realize that it applies to everywhere you climb. So, you know, Devil's Tower or Mato Tipila, that's one example. But, mm-hmm. you know, El Capitan is called Tutacanula, right? And 
uh, half dome is Tissok or something. I can't remember, but you know, the uh, Awani people were there and I don't know, here in Arizona and the places where I climbed, they were sacred to the, the Hopi or the Navajo or the Zuni or different Puebloan groups, you know, uh, it's everywhere that you go. Right. I mean, those, these big mountains that we speak about, like Denali, you know, inherited the name Mount McKinley there for a while. And then that was eventually redacted. Um, I'm sure Rainier has another, has another name. Um, Tahoma. Tahoma. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, it's everywhere. And it started yeah. off as kind of like this, this novel thing for a year. Where I think you cited like 86% decrease or reduction in climbing over that first yeah. year of the of the new climbing management plan so yeah it was like a novel thing and now it's it maybe has gone in the rearview mirror yeah you know and one of the things I, I you know i don't want to go too far into the weeds on this and i also don't want to like misquote myself so go back and you know if you're listening to this go read the article it's on outside online and and double check what i remember but part of the issue is that it's not just private climbers, it's guides. And mm -hmm. so initially, um, the, the initial climbing management plan was written with the voluntary closure for private climbers and a mandatory closure during June for guided parties. And that got, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, either one guide service or a variety of guide services file some sort of request for that language to be changed and it actually did get changed so at this point it's voluntary for guided climbs and guided clients as well and that gets a lot trickier right because it's really not that difficult to talk to a you know a private climber and say hey this is not the best time come back in two weeks but when someone's income or someone's business's income is fully reliant upon uh doing guiding in that month you know that's that's a much harder sell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This, the one of the previous superintendents, um, maybe it was the superintendent at the time of the '95 plan. Like you said, um, he said the success will be marked when climbers meet when there's zero climbers on the tower, yeah. and there will be other options to rewrite the management plan if if it does not reach zero. Do you know what those other options might have been? or how this plan might, might be adaptive? I don't, and I don't think there have been any efforts, at least not to my knowledge. I, I'm sure there have been discussions about this. There's no mm -hmm. reason why someone would have like made me privy to them. <laughs> um, but having gone back up there in 2018 and ha and like interviewing the, the previous superintendent and the current superintendent who was new there and some other climbing rangers, um, I got very much the impression that the Devil's Tower National Monument, just like you know, federal lands all across the country, were strapped for resources at that time, mm -hmm. you know, and so they frankly have bigger fish to fry. Yeah, so so public lands across the country were reeling uh, during his presidency, and and it was really hard to get anything done. So who knows? Maybe uh, with Deb Holland uh, in off in office as secretary of the interior, uh, something more progressive might be in the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I think that was uh, a big part of why she was, yeah, why she was hired in the first place. So, um, yeah, I hope we hope something good comes out of that. 
Uh, all right. Well, I wanted to segue into into your writing, into more of your writing uh, outside of articles and get into your books a bit. Uh, I often hear that writing fiction, because you're like a, a fictional writer so far, um, can be tougher to write than nonfiction. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I can't provide any educational, edu- educated <laughs> perspective on that. But I thought your answer was really good in the Climbing Magazine interview that you did Um uh, well, little, I forget what year that, or that was, that was last year. That was really recent. Yeah, um, I think so. As to yeah. why you, you kind of default to fiction. And I, um, yeah, I was curious what draws you to writing fictional stories. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> whether it's harder or easier, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of different answers to that question. For me, it's probably easier because it's easier for me to be honest. If you're writing nonfiction and you're telling the truth, particularly a contentious truth, you're going to have a lot of people that come after you. And that's just something that has been very challenging for me. I didn't always write fiction. I mean, earlier in my career, I had a blog where I would write super contentious and uh, contentious articles that that are very divisive, divisive subjects. and I would get negative feedback from people that disagreed with me and lose sleep, you know, and, and like, I just couldn't live that way. But at the same time, I've always kind of felt like if you have something to say, you should try and say it. Mm-hmm. And so when you write in fiction, people, I've always found people to be a little bit more open-minded to what you're writing about. Um, for example, my first book, uh, I, I kind of tackled the subject of, of like a climbing tragedy. Um, you know, if, if there were names attached to that tragedy and I tried to imagine, you know, what someone involved in that tragedy might feel, or I tried to make personal value judgments about, you know, whether climbing uh, high risk mountains is worth it. You know, people would, people would come out of the woodworks, like wanting, wanting me, hung and burned in effigy. (laughs) (laughs) But when, but when you do it as fiction, people can just engage with the idea of what would that feel like if this happened to me, right? Because you put your shoes in the, you put yourself in the shoes of the protagonist. What would I feel like if I did that? Might I feel like this? Or what if this was a good friend of mine? Or what if it was a, a relative? And I think that's just a very effective way to um, communicate an emotional concept, you know, same thing with my second book. I mean, my second book could kind of be considered as, uh, a bit of a slap in the face to the climbing community. You know, it's very sort of critical about the way that we engage on public lands and the negative impacts that we have, uh, just by virtue of the sheer numbers of us that are mm-hmm. out there playing and uh, doing all kinds of things like leaving our toilet paper floating around or, you know, creating social trails or things of that nature. Um, again, if I had like come out and said like climbers at Joshua tree do X, Y, and Z and blah, 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 you know, people would be pretty pissed. But when you create a fictional scenario, people can engage with it on their own terms and decide to what degree it resonates or not. And I think probably a lot of the time it resonates because the things that hurt the most, you know, when people are talking about either your heroes or the community you consider part of are the things that have a grain of truth to them. 
So it, it's nice to look at it through a fictional lens, I think. No, I, I, yeah, another wonderful answer to that question. I really like that a lot. And uh, you cited the, these books as, or at least uh, your second book, which we'll get to here in just a little bit, as a cautionary tale. And I see both of these books as just as symbolic, uh, not yeah. like you said, not tying it to a specific example, but uh, more of um, what we can look to as an example of what could happen if we're not careful, either yeah. safety-wise, uh, referring to your first book, Kind of sitting both right here, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, safety wise in the uh, in the first book, and more steward stewardship wise in the second book. Um, yeah, I first came across as above, so below. Your first book, I think, through a mutual kind of acquaintance of mine, uh, Alexa Flower. Um, hmm. I went cool. to college with her at CSU. We climbed a bit in nice. college, and she posted a photo of it on social media, I don't know, three, four years ago, whenever it, it kind of first came out. And I mean, just the, yeah. the cover, uh, both of them have this really like stoic look to them. They're just like the cover, yeah. the feel, they're really small. Like I got the monkey wrench gang sitting right here to another mm. kind of advocacy book, but maybe in a different, sure. different sense. <laughs> yeah. Know, they're just like the, the comparison of them or just the feel of it's really cool. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta get that. And, um, I think I read As Above, So Below in about two days mm. and read Damned If You Don't, the second book, in about five hours. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, was on a, I was on a flight to Anchorage from Denver and just hammered it out. I mean, it, it, nice. that, talk about resonation. Um, uh, they're, they're both so well written and enjoyed Thank them you. so much. Yeah. So let's get into damned if you don't that's the one that's a little bit more advocacy focused and you have a very strong personal history with this area in south america the patagonia region cochimo um which i'm sure all of us have probably heard of at least um it's you hear the it's the yosemite valley of south america and it's a place that you've said that's the most special to you out of like anywhere in the world um something yeah. i'm kind of paraphrasing there from the patagonia article that you wrote um, but while the story is fictional as we've discussed it's mm -hmm. symbolic and you've described it as a bit of a cautionary tale of what could happen if we're not careful so yeah. could we talk about what the book is about and uh, what prompted you to write it? I'd say the book in a nutshell is one of these, I think it was described to me as a trolley car situation. That's where you have these like philosophical dilemmas where it's like, okay, there's uh, this, this, this train. And if you send it on the left track, it's going to, kill 200 people. But if you don't push a button to do that, it's going to run over this other person. Right. And you're kind of like, okay, damned if you do damned, if you don't, mm -hmm. um, the trolley car issue in, in my book is, um, there's going to be a hydroelectric dam built on a river in this beautiful, pristine Valley. And if that dam is built, it's going to flood the Valley and it's going to dramatically, uh, change the ecology of that region. So that's a, that's a, obviously not a, not a go, you know, we can't allow that to happen or the person that's in love with the Valley, John Mercer, he can't allow that to happen on his watch. So what's the solution? How do you stop it from happening? Well, the solution, uh, at least as far back as John Muir and probably further is you create public outcry and support 
for the place that you think is too special to be the subject of a resource extraction project. But this is not John Muir's era, this is modern times. And uh, when you popularize and promote an area that was hitherto pristine and relatively unknown, uh, you know, once the social media crowd gets a hold of it, it can go overnight from like no visitation to way more visitors than it can contain. And so the protagonist, John Mercer, does his best to try and save this place, but inadvertently causes various forms of ruination along the way through his efforts to promote uh, what made it so special. When did you first visit Coach Moan? What have been the subsequent visits like? Um, what year did you go and, and what really grabbed your attention about the place? Yeah, I think my first visit was in 2010. And I, one of my best friends dating way back, uh, Grant Simmons, he just saw the, the uh, article. They did a mountain profile on Alpinist back, way back then. Um, and he was like, gosh, we should go down there. And uh, it's sort of a long story, but ended up going. And my experience that first time was, um, it felt very remote and wild to me. It's worth emphasizing that like the number of people going up there at that time, not just gringos like myself, but just number of people period was far, far less. Uh, there were, I think two campgrounds up there at the time, uh, Camping La Junta and Campo Aventura. And now there's five or maybe six, if you include technically illegal ones. Like that season, I, I kind of, I certainly got to know every climber, even a lot of the non-climbers who were coming up just to go trekking or, or hiking or to, to stay in the valley. I was, I was meeting them too. And it was a real international group, you know, Brazilians and Germans and Chileans, Argentinians, um, uh, Norwegians. Um, there were people from all over and it was really special. And just getting to the bases of the walls was intense. I mean, there were like the trail up to Trinidad Valley. I remember there were sections where you were tunneling under bamboo like they're like you're in the middle of a bamboo. It's kind of Kaliwe, but you know, it's, we would look at it and say bamboo. Mm -hmm. um, you would have to take off your haul bag and like drag it behind you as you were like slithering up this mud slope, you know, to get through <laughs> these tunnels. Now there's a good trail the whole way. So um, over the years, I've been there seven times total since wow. whenever 2010 or something, I've seen it change a lot you know, and every, every year you come back, it's a little bit different and it's a little more well-known. And at this point, it feels to me like, you know, like you said earlier, most people have probably heard the name at this point. And I definitely think it's starting to become, um, part of like the, the American gringo dirtbag circuit, you know, it's like you go to, um, Yosemite in the summer and the fall and then go to Indian Creek in, in the fall or Joshua Tree and then you go down to Cochamo in the winter you know Cochamo or El Chalten mm -hmm. if you're more into like big wall climbing and less into alpinism you go to Cochamo I don't know I mean it's there are some advantages that come from that and some disadvantages but the biggest issue is probably just that it's not a national park it's not Yosemite it's not 
whatever the park in El Chalten is, you know, it's, it's a collection of private parcels mm. and there's no trail crew. There's no team of Rangers. There's no search and rescue team. Um, all of the efforts at stewardship and conservation are carried out by local NGOs, um, or just people who, who work or live in the region and care about it. So the, the impact on the resource is growing exponentially, but the ability to mitigate those impacts is not growing exponentially. So it's sort of headed for a collision. The people who live and work down there work their tails off and volunteer their time and part of their income uh, to preserving the area not just to doing like the bare minimum, but doing the absolute maximum to protect the resources there. But it's just, you know, they're, they're up against a tidal wave. Was, uh, was the, was the plot line of the book very closely representative of what is actually happening or like with like the dam and everything? Uh, is that, is that part true? Not, not exactly. It's sort of, um, so, so back in, 2010, I think, if that was when I first showed up, Cochamo, the, the local people had just just defeated an effort to build a hydroelectric dam on the Rio Cochamo. So there was an effort, I believe it was the Spanish power company Endesa, that uh, they, they ended up failing an environmental impact study or something like that for various reasons. And um, so that project was halted. In the process, then President Bachelet uh, declared uh, the Cochamo region as a soit, which is a zona de interés turístico, or just, you know, a zone of touristic interest. But that designation is not permanent and just sort of, you know, sort of similar to like a national monument. You know, we would think sounds pretty permanent, but you get the right president and they can just uh, revoke a, a monument designation. So it's, it's technically possible um, that something like that could happen, or at least it was at the time that I wrote the book. Um, since then, Chile has adopted a new constitution. And I believe, if I understand correctly, that part of that constitution was that water rights in Chile are no longer privatized. So in the past, at the time that I was visiting Cochamo and writing this book, water rights in Chile were private. So a company from Spain, right, or the U.S. or wherever could come in, they could buy the rights to a river and they could dam the river and, you know, to hell with whoever, whatever locals are going to be affected by that. If my understanding is correct, that is no longer the case. So that's going to be increasingly difficult um, to to dam a river like the Cochamo. So that's just kind of, yeah, one outsider issue. But um, dealing with like the kind of our community that are that are going there year after year, season after season, mm-hmm. um, this new infrastructure is, is has come along. Uh, new promotional material has come along. So in order to to save it. Just like you talk about in the book, I mean, in order to in order to save it, you need to promote it maybe just a little bit yeah. to to gain that notoriety for the place a bit. Right, and that's I mean that's the direction it's going one way or another. I mean, I was just talking to my friend in San or sorry, he's down in uh, Cochamón now, but 
Yeah, he was telling me that like various uh, Chilean brands are now fighting over like, not really fighting, but you know, they're kind of like trying to lay claim to Cochamo as part of their brand, you know? And so you have, I mean, Cochamo is, it's not, it's not that much like Yosemite in various ways, but for Chile, it's, you know, it's, it is Yosemite, like that is their Yosemite. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of brands that want to align with that. There are a lot of people that want to market it or use it as a mark, as a piece of their marketing. And that's just in Chile, you know, obviously in the States and parts of Europe, it's becoming more popular too. I don't know. That's just going to blow it up even more. And I don't know if it's create yeah. more, potentially more issues or create more advocates from the place at the same time. Right. It's just, I mean, that trolley analogy that you had. Well, think about it in the US, right? I mean, what brand in the climbing industry hasn't used, let's say, Indian Creek, Yosemite Valley, the Buttermilks, and uh, the Red River Gorge or, mm-hmm. or the Gunks or something to right. market their product, mm-hmm. right? The difference is those places are all either preserves or national parks or something. They've got some sort of management body in place to handle or try to handle anyway, um, the increase in visitation that that, that marketing will create. In mm-hmm. Chile, that infrastructure doesn't really exist for Cochamo. Right. When the president designated it as that, uh, how'd you say, the touristic place of interest, mm-hmm. was that on like behalf of his own administration or did you have a John Mercer of sorts from the book speaking to uh, the the politicians or whoever might be in charge to, to influence that decision? So President Bachelet, um, I think, I think, succumb to a lot of public pressure. I don't think there was necessarily one Mercer-esque figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really the whole idea of a Mercer-esque figure is increasingly rare. Um, you might have like, you might think of like a Doug or a Chris Tompkins or an Yvonne Chouinard, but more and more it's local grassroots organizations fighting and gaining the attention of international communities um, and that's what happened, that the efforts to protect the Rio Cochamo and later the Rio Manso, which is just, you know, 50 miles south or so, um, that, that's all been spearheaded by super smart, super motivated, hardworking local advocates in the Los Lagos region of Chile. Right on. Gotcha. Well, you wrote, you wrote an article for Patagonia speaking of Yvonne Chouinard and I think it was, I got it pulled up here. We haven't messed up Cochamo yet. Uh, how can we make it stay, keep it that way? And I wanted yeah. to read the first couple lines from that. And it says, uh, what can I say about Cochamo that hasn't already been said of a thousand other places before? It's beautiful. It's magical. It's special. How about this? We haven't messed it up yet. And I think that's, that's, that's it's again, very well put and very, uh, very, very unique stance for, for this area to be in because it is fairly new, I think, on a generational perspective. Um, there just aren't that many places, I think, like that. There are still climbing areas being conserved every year. Um, but a lot of the places that, we're ta- that you just mentioned have been around a really long time. And to quote... Ty Tyler, who's a stewardship director for the Access Fund, you know, he always says that these areas were not really set up to be climbing areas back in the day. And they there wasn't forward thinking, you know, just 
not knowing of what the sport was going to look like 50 years down the road to handle the traffic that they see today. So I think Coach Mo might have been in a unique position to be proactive in this a bit. Would you agree? Yes, and I guess Um, it is in the position because it's sort of we don't some people may still have their head in the sand, but but most of us, I think, don't at this point. You know, we realize that climbing is a very popular sport. Uh, we realize how um, compelling backcountry travel is. Um, we realize how much visitation in area like Cochamo can be subject to if it's not sort of restricted or um, otherwise managed. So we kind of can go into the whole, we can go into Cochamo's future with clear eyes, you know, mm-hmm. clear heads. Exactly. Right. Um, we're not just flying by the seat of our pants. But just because we can doesn't mean we will. And so um, I think Kochomo is unique in that uh, if one were to magically come to own all the that private land, one could um, come up with some very forward-thinking policies for how to manage that. So like I tend to think of things in terms of steps towards um, – a higher level of conservation. Mm -hmm. So, and it gets complicated, right? Because I usually put national parks on that scale. Uh, National parks are, you know, America calls it America's best idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's considered around the world as a good model for conservation, notwithstanding the fact that those areas were almost universally better conserved when there were indigenous peoples living in them compared to what we've what western civilization has done to everywhere else yes it's a good step in terms of conservation right if you compare it to like industrial britain you know yeah it's a win good job good job with yosemite national park and then you kind of look at what tompkins conservation did in chile and argentina i think that's another step further in the right direction so you know, instead of making it kind of like the Disneyland model, just get as many people in there as you possibly can have concessionaires, uh, you know, Yosemite's got a jail in it and a court and, you know, thousands of tour buses all the time. Right. So Tompkins Conservation said, no, we're going to we're going to lead with um, the ecosystem. We're going to restore the ecosystem. And that's going to be like the driving force of these parks. I think that there needs to be another step, you know, and, and there will probably be continual steps as we go forward. But what does real conservation look like? What would be a real success in the 21st century? I think that if we're going to be realistic about it, it has to involve indigenous populations because they've always been the best stewards of the land. So what would that look like? You know, how, how might that function? And is there a point at which tourism has to take a step back? You know, we often think of tourism as the uh, the patron saint of conservation, right? But uh, obviously, it has its impacts too. I know. I'm, you know, we're all proponents of uh, of traveling, of tourism, and these places are yeah places of tourism, and we're all part of the issue, whether we like it or not. 
you know, I, I right. think of the uh, difference between preservation and conservation, the kind of this John Muir model versus Gifford Pinchot model, you know, bring mm-hmm. it back to the early 1900s and the Hetch Hetchy Valley and all that. Um, you know, we get to a point, back to a point where we're going to be more of a preservation, you know, looking more at preservation than conservation. I don't know. Right. I don't know if, yeah, I guess it's more of a rhetorical question, but I kind of, I toss those thoughts around. Quite a bit. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you go there because that's sort of, for me, that's one of the most critical moments in my book is when uh, Gary and John are talking. Uh, I think it's the two of them that are talking. It's funny when you can't even remember your own book. <laughs> um, but they're, at some point, John says either to Gary or to Brayden, um, go to, you know, it's, it's to Brayden. It's later in the book. He says, Go to go to Hetch Hetchy and then go to Yosemite Valley and then think about it and then tell me which is the greater ecological disaster, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, I don't I didn't try to answer that because I don't know what the answer is, mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. you know, you prov- yeah, you provided a symbol there, though, and, and just get yeah. get the wheels turning a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you spoke about many grassroots efforts and things, and I want to tip my hat to you and nod to you a bit with uh, Friends of Cochimo, right? Uh, you're one of the – I don't know too much about the organization, but uh, you're one of the founders, I believe. Um, curious uh, when when that form and that group formed and what is its mission nowadays? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, one, some of them are questions I would love to know the answer to also. Um <laughs> Friends of Cochimo is is the result of an idea that, you know, myself and all of my partners and friends that I've spent time with in Cochimo have thought about. I think it's pretty natural when you go down there to want to do something to help, to want to do something to get ahead of the tourism wave a little bit, whether that's trail maintenance or, you know, building a, a pit toilet like in an upper valley basically there's work to be done, you know? And and so you go down there and you get that, that thought in your head. Well, we talked about it for years and then myself and my wife and my friend JB and uh, some of our local friends who live down there, work down there. We all got together and formed friends of Cochimo. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea behind friends of Cochimo really was, Let's amplify and bring attention to the efforts that are already going on down there with local organizations. So there are nonprofits and NGOs down there that are already working to protect the Cochimo Valley and the you know the cultural and ecological resources. Our idea was not to uh, come up with our own plans or our own ideas for what's going to happen down there, but rather to, to sort of ask them, how can we help, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, for example, we, during, during the COVID pandemic, a lot of the arrieros, those are like, um, uh, horse packers, you know, they like people that will put your, your gear on their horses and carry it up to the Valley. They sure. also do trekking tours. Uh, they were out of work because of COVID. And so, and and meanwhile, the trail into La Junta Valley is always, um, it's just a, in a constant state of disrepair. So we figured out, 
kind of with uh, the, you know, the graces of, of our sister organizations down there that if we could raise money to, to fund some trail work, we could also employ out of work our arrows. So that's sort of hitting those two sweet spots of like protecting the resource, but also protecting the community and the local cultural heritage. Um, So we were super fortunate to get this grant from the adventure travel conservation fund. Mm. And that was like our first big project. Now, we are actually in a stage of trying to go back and maybe lay a foundation that we should have done from the very start. So mm. um, we're trying to become a more functional organization. We're trying to get super clear about what we do, how we do it. Um, and that's actually been super, super exciting because when we formed it, none of us really knew what we were doing. We just knew there was a need. And now we're sort of taking a step back and saying, you know what, let's let's go back to the beginning and lay a really solid foundation that we can build upon. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I can't imagine it's challenging being being an American trying to do work that's so many thousands of miles away. And the, yeah. the, the communication, just that's got to be, you know, it, it, it just forming the organization itself is challenging. I mean, I know personally about that. And, right having that uh, distance uh, barriers got added just that extra level of challenge. Yep. It's, it's tough, but I mean, as a credit to everyone in the organization, like we all care about it that much, you know? Mm -hmm. So people are showing up. Uh, It just so happens that like the meeting time that we've settled upon is like 9 PM for our, our friends down in Chile and Argentina. And so they're showing up late to like, you know, they're, they're the leaders. Like, I can't say that enough. I I'm happy to, you know, to say thank you. If someone tells me good job with friends of Cochimo, but like, I'm not the leader. Friends of Cochimo is not the leaders. Like the people of the Los Lagos region of Chile are the foremost advocates and defenders of that region. And we're just doing whatever we can to try and help them out in our own small way. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's very humble of you. Um, are you familiar with the uh, climbing initiative? Yep, for sure. Yeah, I met some of those guys up at the International Climbing Festival. They're they're great. I think. Did you meet Veronica? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Vero and um, uh, who else? Who else did I meet? Gosh, that's terrible. I can see her face, but I'm forgetting her name. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure who else was there. Yeah, Danny yeah. maybe. I don't know. Um, well, they they got their big press best practices uh book yep. coming out they're rolling out chapter by chapter yep. there will be like a um a best practice for organizational formation and things coming out here pretty soon yeah i talked to them at some point i was talking with them about um writing something for that i don't know if that's fallen off the back burner or not i can be if you don't if 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 someone doesn't like tie me down I can, I can like tend to forget about things because there's a lot on my plate uh, at any given time. Yeah, but, no, I hear you. Me too. <laughs> but it's a great idea, and I think that I think we're going to be hearing and seeing a lot from the climbing initiative over the the years to come. Nikki, oh, yeah. that's who it was. It okay. was Nikki and cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, I I had Veronica and Danny on. Jeez, uh, I don't know, sometime last year, I think, maybe it was even more, even longer than that. But yeah, you know, I, I 
saying their praises and I told them that they're filling like a, a nice niche between like, you know, got the American Alpine Club and, and the Access Fund up here and uh-huh. they fit this role kind of um, that hasn't been filled yet. And that there's been, they're yeah. crushing it, doing great work. Definitely. Where else can folks find you, Chris, and some of your work? You got a website, you've been featured on some other podcasts. Um, where else can folks learn about Chris Kalman a bit more? Um, I guess, you know, all the standard stuff, like uh, I'm on Instagram. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> I do use it. Um, pretty sure it's making me like a worse person in the long run, but uh, there it is. Um, one thing that I do, which I actually quite like, is I have an email newsletter. Yes. And that's sort of like, it doesn't feel like social media. Like I can actually be just a real honest human. Um, there's no pictures. It's just writing. Um, usually like I put effort, put like actual effort into the writing. So, um, you know, it's creative. Sometimes it's funny. Um, it is funny. I, I try and do as little marketing as I can on it, but I do use it, uh, on occasion to, to just remind people like, Hey, I've got these books. If you want to buy one, go for it. But mostly what I try and do is create sort of, uh, an enjoyable piece of writing that will be a break from someone's day. Mm-hmm. And uh, every once in a while, again, email and response. And I, I act- actually have like nice conversations with people that reply to those. So for staying in touch, I mean, that's, that's kind of my favorite way. And um, yeah, if, if anyone wants to, they can sign up at my website. It's chriscalman.com. It's just, just, there's like a sign up form on the bottom of the page. <laughs> Cool. Well, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's how we got connected. Uh, I, I saw your newsletter somewhere, and it's like if you want to subscribe, like shoot me an email or something. I'm like, yep, yeah, like sign me up. And it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's really entertaining. Yeah. Then we just started kind of shooting the breeze back and forth over some email, and I think that's actually sure. where I mentioned the uh, that Black Canyon accident was in was in that email chain. But yeah, I'm gonna have to go look that up because yeah. <laughs> now I feel like a jerk. I can't believe I don't remember. No, 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 no sweat, Chris. No sweat at all. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend the newsletter. It is funny. It's engaging. You, I could tell you put time and effort into it and your Thank mom you. thinks it doesn't suck. So yeah, that's true. That's what it <laughs> depends on the, depends on the week though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's just a funny way to market it. I love that. Well, right on Chris. I really appreciate the time. We, uh, yeah, went over just a little bit, which is fine. Um, sure. Yeah, this is great. Uh, thanks so much. And Let's just keep in touch, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Peter. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year and, of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year. And after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there it's all listed on access funds website accessfund.org so check it out if you're a rock climber please consider becoming a member of access fund second 
If you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.